Welcome to In Our Experience, a podcast exploring the many ways of living well with Nourish Yoga Training. I'm your host, Harriet, yoga teacher and founder of Nourish. Today, I'm joined virtually by Simran Upal. Simran is a yoga teacher, writer and organizer based in East London. Simran's part of Nourish's teaching faculty and they've also led a wide range of CPD and public workshops in the US, across the UK and more widely. Simran is also an organizer at the Yoga Teachers Union. I had a wonderful time chatting with Simran and our conversation covered a really broad range of topics from the fetishization of yoga teaching, the relationship between activism and practice, being intimate with all things and their upcoming co-practice with Nourish, which starts in January 2022. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. So do pop us a message or an email. You can find how to contact us in the show notes. Here's my conversation with Simran. Hi, Simran. How are you? Hello, I am really, really well, thanks. Even more well for getting to share some space with you this afternoon. Oh, well, thank you for coming on to In Our Experience. It's a real, real pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited to have a chat. Um, As always, the first question is the question that I ask every guest, um, which is, what's nourishing you this week? And as I'm fond of saying, this can be simple or serious playful or profound and I will share mine first uh, to help you out so what's been nourishing me this week is um getting all of the lovely feedback from people listening to the podcast um so I've got some really lovely messages um Instagram comments people have been writing reviews and it's like makes my cheeks all fluffy and happy um because this has been such a fun project to work on and I really love hearing what people are saying um, and that really nourishes me and motivates me to keep going. Um, So that's me. What about you? Mm. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. I think perhaps this week it's, and this is surprising for me, um, it's routine has been really, really nourishing me. I tend to not be like hugely routine led and I often feel that absence. But this week I've been finding that balance of like firmness and softness. And I've done pretty much the same thing every single morning, um, I guess for nearly a week now. And oh, it is the most supportive thing in the world. The routine itself is a bit um, stereotypically yoga teacher I mix like a juice with a fiber supplement and like a green powder the real thing would be if it was a real green juice but I don't have the energy for that so it's just like <laughs> a powder and then a fiber powder and then ginger and lemon juice and it all gets mixed up in my smoothie maker and I go and sit on the balcony and I drink it and it's actually not disgusting I only drink it because it's delicious <laughs> um, and I've been doing a little bit of practice just like 20 minutes oh that sounds so lovely. And you took, you literally took the word out of my brain, which I was going to say, which is like, sometimes routine can be so supportive. Like it provides this um, like platform for the day or like foundation for what's to come. Like, oh yeah. yeah. Mm. I think supportive was probably you speaking through me. That was almost <laughs> certainly your voice like coming through me there. It's a word I'm very fond of. I saw this. I saw this thing on Instagram ages ago. I will, I'll, like, we'll we'll pop it in the show notes. I think it was on Margot Feldman's Instagram where it was talking about replacing the word healthy with supportive because healthy is such a like a loaded word for all sorts of reasons and how 
when sometimes we say healthy, what we really mean is like supportive or resourcing or something like that. Mm, I love that. I'm bringing it back to like you and actually looking after you rather than some external system of that's being like placed on the body of like virtue, I suppose. Mm, exactly. Mm. Mm, delicious. Well, um, let's start by sort of getting getting to know you a little bit more. I mean, I know you very well because we're, you know, we've worked together for a few years and um, are also, you know, close very close friends. Um, but for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you would describe what you do? Because you do many interesting things. Yes, thank you for calling them interesting. I like to think they're interesting as well. <laughs> um, so I suppose I'm one of those people who flinches when someone asks me what I do or even like how I spend my time. Because like you say, I sort of do about a million things. Um, I guess the way I describe myself is with that sort of uh, that kind of three part thing used by introduction of um, a writer, a yoga teacher and an organiser. Um, so I write, I write all kinds of things, um, especially poetry. I'm moving towards lyric essays at the moment. I use a lot of translation, um, especially working from kind of like devotional and ecstatic traditions from South Asia um, and like very free and kind of like emerging from the body and emerging from the sensation kinds of translation, I suppose. Um, and that also goes into other forms of writing. So some like uh, instructional writing with nourish and some um, journalism type writing too. Uh, and I'm a yoga teacher. So at the moment, most of my work is the like nourish yoga teacher training work. Um, lots of fab workshops and the kind of co-practice series that I'll just throw a little taster for that uh, into the, the waters um, I also teach around East London. I've got a lovely in-person group, which I've just um, just started. And then finally, that laces over into the third part, which is as an organiser. Um, and I've kind of organised in more community organising type ways. At the moment, it's really with the amazing Yoga Teachers Union um, in that kind of workers' rights space, um, which for the yoga industry spills into so many other kinds of organising. It's both like coming together as workers to kind of fight for an industry that is sustainable and that allows us to live um, sustainable lives in the sense of to live healthily um, or to be supported in our life, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also the like widest range of, of, of other like fights and struggles that are inextricable from that. Many hats. But all, but all sort of like, this is the thing that I often think about when when a person has the sort of many hats or the, or the sort of hyphenate, like, you know, when somebody's a hyphenate, so you're like yoga teacher, hyphen writer, hyphen organizer, is that really it's the same question or the same, uh, like the same core truth that's being explored or expressed in different mediums and in different communities and in different ways. Um, so maybe like what are some of those like core values or core questions that link those three hyphens, those three spheres for you? Mm, that's such a beautiful way of framing it. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually in this, this sort of post-COVID turning point almost. Um, I think I've been going through a lot of turning points in career and, and work and life recently. And I think my way into this question was, 
actually, I couldn't be the poet that I am without the yoga teaching work that I do. And it's not that the time spent yoga teaching is time away from like the desk or the, the writing workshop or something. Um, it's impossible for me to write the work that I write without the asana practice that I have and the pranayama practice I have and the teaching and facilitation practice I have. And these are moments of, I think when you say like lead a nidra, you're leading like a group space of dreaming, right? Or you're facilitating group dreaming. And I don't know what poetry is other than really exactly that. Mm. And there are these tools that weave from one to the other, the work of poetry and the work of um, yoga teaching and the work of community organizing or, or, or political organizing more widely, which is, you know, I mean, I suppose organizing is all about these interpersonal relationships of helping people to step into their agency to realize they can like build worlds that are that are our birthright, the worlds that we should have had always. And what is yoga teaching, but, or what is good yoga teaching, mm. but finding ways to enable people to step into their agency. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like I'm doing the same thing in different mm. ways at different places, but I'm never quite sure if there's one like thread that connects to them all. There's just this sort of like pattern weaving of action that seems to um, express itself in these different locations. I think the other thing is these things all feel the same to me when I do them. Like, why do I do these things? Because I want to, because I don't know, there's some, like, there's something deeply human about like making art and like coming into these spaces of nourishment together and like fighting for what we believe is right and good. Like these are just fundamental things that we all do as humans, that we all need as humans. And I don't know what it is that unites them, but it's sort of like, how could these things ever be be separate or distinct? Or how could you live without having all these bits? And I think we all have all these bits. Um, they just fit into different boxes in our lives and in different ways and different shapes. I love that so much. And I yeah, I like this idea of sort of a patterning or a um almost like the the image that came to me as you're talking is like like a tapestry or maybe like a quilt or something like that where you are adding on and it sort of expands and uh you know deepens with time i think one of the things that is really interesting to me in my own work is that for a long time i didn't really see a pattern in what i did i just sort of did what i felt was interesting or right or fun or as you're saying because I wanted to because there was a desire around you know doing these things um and I think over time patterns emerge and like unfold and now it's quite clear to me and actually this is a realization that I only had the sort of Uh, the words for recently but now that you know in hindsight I can see that it's been coming a long time um and it won't be a surprise to anybody that what I'm deeply passionate about is like pedagogy is like how we teach um and what values and beliefs and ideas approaches that we bring to how we teach you know whatever we're teaching you know whether that's asana or whether that's training teachers or whether that's like in in other settings as well but uh 
you know, it's something that now I sort of step back and I have that clarity. I'm like, oh, this is the thing I've been interested in, you know, for a very long time. And I was like, um, so, and, and it sort of means that cause one of the issues that I've sometimes felt is that I'm interested in too many things because the, that's the other side of the coin to having, to having this sort of pattern emerging is that sometimes it takes a while for you to be able to see what the pattern is. And in the meantime, you've got like all of these different things. And, you know, when I sort of, I was looking at what I teach and I was like, well, I teach on the 200 hours and I teach restorative yoga and I teach pregnancy yoga and I teach, uh, trauma inclusive stuff. And I teach anatomy and I teach like, you know, there's, there's all of these things that I do. And I sort of, I had a moment not of, um, I guess not of imposter syndrome, but one of the, I think one of the trends that I really see in, I mean, so many things, but in yoga teaching specifically is this push towards specialization or a pressure towards specialization. And I was, I was sort of questioning myself recently, like, do I need to refine what I offer? Um, in a way, or do I need to sort of prune the, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to mix metaphors. Do I need to like, you know, edit the pattern that I'm creating or is this okay? And then I, I had this sort of, yeah, this realization that no, the thing that covers all of this, like the umbrella over all of it is my passion around pedagogy and bringing those questions to all of these different topics. Um, but this, you know, this push towards specialization within yoga teaching, I think is really interesting as well. Mm, that's that's so wonderfully put all, all through that. And I really see that thread that you, you weave. I really think more and more recently where I want to focus my yoga teaching practice is around that feeling, like that sensation of wanting. And I'm in a very lucky position right now where like financially, um, I'm not dependent solely on my yoga teaching by having that like diversified income and working in different ways in different spaces. Very, very luckily, I can like reduce the financial pressure on at least one of the things that I'm doing uh, or, or maybe even two, depending. And there's something quite freeing about that. Um, it's a little funny. I was recently asked to fill out a little form and it was like I got to an arts event early and the person was like oh my friend is doing this um program working with 16 year olds and um, we're just trying to gather the views of slightly more experienced artists and writers uh, like what do you wish you had known at the age of 16 before going into a career in the arts or whatever it is and I was like oh god like the only advice I'm going to give is the most boring advice which is it's okay to not try and be an artist full time. If you want to study further, that's something that's available to you. Go and get a degree that might support you in your income or pursue like a career path that will give you what you need to live and then worry about art. And I was like, God, have I turned into some old fogey like parent being like, <laughs> no, look after your career first. But, but that's not it. It's sort of saying life is so broad and so wide and there are so many things we can do. And these things, especially if we're, we're resourced to, they can all like, like fertilize each other. Mm. Oh, I really hear that. I think it's really interesting. Students, I mean, come to 
do a teacher training, like an initial 200 hour teacher training for all sorts of reasons. You know, some people are very clear that they're not really sure or they're not very interested in teaching and they're doing it as a space to sort of deepen practice and deepen knowledge, which I'm really here for. And then you will get some people coming and they're very, very clear that they want to use the teacher training and then teaching yoga as a way to transition from one career into another. And I sometimes really struggle with these conversations because I don't know how to tell them to not do that (laughs) in the sense of like, like not that it's not possible because it definitely is possible, but it takes a long time to get there and you need to have transitional income in, you know, in the meantime. I mean, I have only I've been a I've been full-time uh I've been teaching yoga full-time for seven years but I've only not been doing other things for um, maybe like I don't know pick a number like four years three years you know it depends on how you count my time you know running yoga quota but um I've only been like full-time, full-time, you know, with teacher training and with my own, you know, with teaching and writing for, yeah, maybe three or four years. And when people come and they're like, they're so, they're, they're so in need of a way out of whatever job they're in. Like it's, it's, it's not supporting them they don't feel alive in it. They don't feel engaged in it. And they're really looking for a way out and they see teaching yoga as that escape route. Um, And often they'll ask me, you know, like how many classes a week do I need to teach in order to to have a full-time income? And I'm like, well, it depends on what your definition of a full-time income is. It depends on where you live. It depends on how people pay you. Um, And, the, you know, the reality is, is that most yoga teachers, the vast majority of yoga teachers are not full-time yoga teachers. And they also either are like independently wealthy or have a partner that supports them. And I think we need to be really, really honest about that because, you know, it's, it's not, and I mean, maybe you can speak to this from the perspective of the, the yoga teachers union, but, you know, the people who are, full-time just from teaching yoga it's the smallest percentage smallest slice of the pie i think that's that's so interesting do you know i don't i wonder if we have i bet if anyone would have any data on that it might be us and that would be such an interesting thing to look into Mm. but i think there's sort of two things that are happening and the first for me is there's this almost like um fetishization of like the yoga teacher lifestyle as like the ultimate yogic lifestyle. And it's sort of like to to be at peace, to escape the things that you're running away from, Mm. you have to be doing yoga full time. There's this idea that it's this like utopia that you sort of almost like you renounce life and then you're just in this phase of like um, eat, pray, love, peace, (laughs) right? 
Um, and it's such um, it's such a light. I, I think my, my dear friend Rishi, um, some some monk, some Buddhist monk of some order, I'm not sure which one. Um, I think maybe a Shin a Shin monk said to him something like, "If you're meditating for more than half an hour every day, what are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> the idea that. being that actually, do you know what? That should be enough. Mm. Over like half an hour a day, that should be more than enough. Now that's you know often a lot of us need way more resourcing, you know, or, or less resourcing or whatever. Um, and whatever you need, you should give yourself that with with like utmost like you know like righteousness and good feeling. But you know, there's that sense that you're like, oh, I have to be doing yoga all the time, and it has to be my whole life, and I have to like do two hours of like mm. vipassana or whatever, mm. or practice every single morning. Otherwise, I'm not yogic enough. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, 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 come on, like. If you're doing more than half an hour, and this is coming from a monk, what are you doing? Like, there's other shit to do, you know, <laughs> there's stuff to do. Um, you know, maybe look at the rest of your life, perhaps. Um, and sometimes, you, sometimes, you know, the only way that you can resource yourself is through two hours of practice and you can't fix the other things in your life. Cool. Then that's amazing. What a gift, right? Um, but the idea that you need to be doing that much. Yeah. And then the second thing is the idea around, like, how and who can teach yoga or who can make an income teaching yoga and how these things weave mm-hmm. together. Oh, and I think it's, it's such a nightmare because there's so many, like there's so, so many factors in it, right? There's, um, I think it's always important to think about like the full landscape of players mm. because say in London, what does it do to yoga teacher salaries to have more yoga building like closer and closer to like a monopoly especially on like the kind of budget side of yoga Mm. with those deals where it's like five pounds for a month of unlimited practice for students like what is that doing it's something like that what is that doing and it's knock-on effect to the rest of the industry and the amount that teachers can make in independent studios that teachers can make through running their own like you know independently run classes in a hall or something oh yeah and i i I mean, it's such like a huge, wide-ranging issue of like, how much should yoga teachers be paid, and mm. how should we be paid, and in what ways, and like, you know, what should that be able to support in terms um, of income and work? But I think what we do know is that there's a lot of people making the situation a lot, a lot worse um, for really no reason other than the kind of private profit of a couple of very big businesses. Um, which we could sort of list almost on one hand in the UK. Mm. Um, and I think maybe that's a good place to start, shifting it there and then seeing what the knock-on effect might be for the rest of the industry. But I, I completely agree that um, yoga teaching can't be an escape plan. And actually, mm. as an industry, it's a pretty tough place to try and earn a living, right? Um, you sort of are expected to live... Um, there's this expectation to sort of be like a monastic, like a renunciant, mm. except renunciants can renounce because they have large institutions that support them. You know? Yeah. Like, that's the secret, right? Like whether you're like a sannyasin and you're like a wandering sannyasin, the institution is the deeply held cultural view that you give like a, you know, like a, a holy beggar or whatever, you know, food or whatever, and that's enough to survive. Mm. Although I'm sure there's a lot of fear in that, blah, blah, blah. Or if you're, say, a monastic in a Buddhist order like Plum Village, you have a gorgeous place in the south of France or somewhere else to live. <laughs> and, 
and stay and be warm. Yeah. Which are not things that you have, even if you're on universal credit, right? Like even yeah. if even the social welfare system is less support than the support that many monastic institutions offer. Like renunciants in the yogic and Buddhist and other traditions. Gosh, I'm really going on. I didn't realize how heatedly I felt about this. But renunciants generally have more institutional support than the social welfare that we have in this country. I used to work as a benefits and <laughs> Well, also a really good example of where like your teaching and organizing intersect. To um to come back to this idea of escapism, this is a real this is something I have a lot of feelings about. Um we've talked about it many times, but the I think the fetishize fetishization of yoga teaching as a as a sort of ideal profession goes along with the approach that I see so many people use, which is like escape through practice. Um, and do, and, and by, what I mean by that is they use their practice to get away from themselves or get away from the problems of the world or uh, as a way of like creating like a, almost like a parallel universe creation. Like they create a little parallel bubble that they exist in through practice that doesn't actually lead them deeper into themselves, that doesn't actually lead them deeper into the world or into their relationships. It just sort of um, displaces or dissociates into this sort of like uh, fantasy land. And like maybe we all need that from time to time because there's a certain safety in that. But people like you know I, I really I really struggle with it because for me what I'm interested in is getting closer like getting closer to myself getting closer to the world getting closer to my relationships like being more in things and finding more depth and intimacy and like um uh connection and not this sort of like I don't know toxic escape fantasy yes um i would say maybe one way of reflecting that back is there is a humongous difference between like spaces of refuge and sanctuary and sort of like spiritually bypassing the fuck mm -hmm. out of yourself mm -hmm. um into another plane these are entirely, entirely different things. And they might cross over at some point. So, you know, there might be practices that might take you in both directions. But there's a big difference between refuge and sanctuary and denial, bypassing, and um, uh, as I used in our conversation earlier today, yeeting yourself off to another dimension, <laughs> right? These are just very different things. Um, mm. And I think this is something I engage with as someone with, like, a real history of practices that do have a tendency to kind of like yeet me off into the akash, right? Like off into the ether. Um, but I've often realized two things about this. The first is that in those moments of like devotional ecstasy, there's a photo of me that my dear friend Zad took and I'm lying down on my front, just like not even in sort of that traditional prostration where you lie on your front and you have your hands in front of you. I'm just lying on my front with my arms by my side, almost like I've fallen over like a glitch in a video game or something. I'm lying in this field uh, in, in Wales and it's sort of sunset and it's golden. It's very beautiful. And Zad had just taken this picture because she was like, oh, what are they doing? You know, in a very non-judgmental yeah. way. And I was having this 
like ecstatic experience <laughs> of like union. And honestly, the only way to describe it is I felt like, and with all respect to the earth, I felt like I was fucking the earth, right? <laughs> like I felt like the earth and I were having sex, like seriously. You know, that, and it was like fucking, like it was that feeling. <laughs> and Zad and I had been away on this writing retreat and we'd been, you know, swimming in the river and talking about our writing and, you know, like um, meditating or whatever. And, you know, just generally talking about especially like bliss and ecstasy and sex and poetry and whatever. It was, it was a sort of um, a sort of like a, like a queer brown bride's head sort of weekend away. almost. Um, but. Why am I talking about this? Yes, um, because sometimes <laughs> in, can you see how the tendency towards um, um, in those moments of um, intimacy, that's what you have. You have closeness. You have mm. togetherness. You are deeply, 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 deeply there. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm reminded there's um, a quote uh, at the start of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's translations of the Heart Sutra. Um, and it's a quote by one of his students. Um, there's a foreword by one of his students who quotes um, a Vietnamese poet of the, of the kind of medieval era. I'm not sure exactly when. Who says, Zen, or I suppose Tien, um, is intimacy with all things. Mm. And this, I think, is often what I'm trying to achieve, to be intimate with all things. Mm. And sometimes that looks like... Um, tripping balls, right? And and sometimes that looks like the softness and the expansiveness at the end of, say, a weekend of restorative yoga led by a dear friend. Mm. Um, <laughs> and sometimes that looks like sex. And sometimes that looks like eating a good meal. And sometimes that looks like, like holding a friend. And sometimes that looks like um, in just the same way that you might hold a, a friend's hand. Sometimes that's like being held by a whole river. Mm. And that is intimacy with all things. Mm. Um, Michael Stone uh, translates samadhi as intimacy. So, you know, mm. instead of samadhi being this like, you know, quite abstract thing of like absorption or like, uh, you know, being in something it's like it's quite a difficult thing to conceptualize he talks about samadhi as like uh intimacy with intimacy with the world in you know exactly exactly what you're saying so um i think that's really lovely and actually what you were saying there about like for me it seems that pleasure is sort of tied up in this as well and it leads us quite nicely because we have a little bit of time left and i thought perhaps I could ask you to talk very, very briefly about the new co-practice series that you have coming up with us, um, Pleasure, Prana and Poetry, starting in January. Yes. So Pleasure, Prana, Poetry is um, the sort of co-practice series that I'm very, very, very excited to be running with Nourish over the first six months of next year. And we'll meet for a couple of hours once a month um, online for a kind of fusion um, movement, dreaming, poetry, um, and kind of music uh, co-practice. And the idea is that there are so many ways of like exploring what pleasure means and the experience of pleasure and how pleasure can be this like extraordinarily supportive guide or like guiding voice, something we can listen to. 
Um, and I suppose the two channels that I see that in in my own life, one is the world of like poetry and song of like devotion, devotional, of devotional, sacred, ecstatic poetry, largely from kind of South Asian traditions. So like Sufi, um, Kawali, right? This kind of like rousing folk, um, like really loud and joyful um, um, or kind of intense, emotionally intense form of community singing, um, Kirtan and, and other forms like that. But also the kind of like quieter poetry of like absorption and um, sort of like experiences of the sacred that you might find, say, in like the Nanak's work and some of the the, the writings of different Sikh traditions and communities, or often some very loudly too, of course. So we'll explore like a body of work, um, which I'll sort of curate like a little um, like a little package each month of um, poems and songs and some recorded kind of famous life performances accompanied by translations and notes and lots of wonderful resources. Mm. And we'll come together each month for a largely movement-led session with maybe a bit of nidra in there and um, a bit of breath work and some other things. Oh, it just sounds so juicy. Yes. Yes, uh, and I'll just, sorry, I'll, I'll wrap that up. So I'm, I'm getting lost in the, the raptures of, of pleasure. But um, and we'll simply find ways to weave these things together and explore how you might want to weave these things in your own life, um, in your own practice, in your own teaching. And the ghost of Audrey Lord, the spirit of Audrey Lord, and all, all her ideas about the erotic, aka this fundamental principle of, of pleasure and what is right as a guide towards what is just and what is good and what is nourishing and what is radical. Um, she'll be with us too, just a little. Oh, that just sounds like perfection. And also a nice thing to do sort of to start in the dark, cold months of the year and like emerge into the season of pleasure mm. in a sense, which yes. the summer can be. Um, wonderful. So wrapping things up, sadly, uh, where can where can people find you? Where can they uh, follow your work and see what you're doing? Yes, absolutely. Well, right now they can find me in a slightly odd basement room in a co-working <laughs> space in East London. Sorry for the, the terrible um, joke, but uh, the best place is to find me um, via my Instagram, which um, is at Simran S. Opal, but I imagine we might be able to link it. And you can also find me at simranopal.co.uk, which will direct you to poetry and yoga and politics um you can also reach me at yoga outreach at iwgb.co.uk that's yoga outreach at <laughs> iwgb.co.uk if you have any particular questions and thoughts around um trade unionism and building a yoga industry that works for us all wonderful well thank you so so much simran for joining me today it has been a true pleasure um and i'll speak mm. to you soon Yes, the pleasure was all mine. Really looking forward to speaking very soon. Thanks for listening to In Our Experience. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. We love hearing what you think and it makes a really big difference. In the meantime, until the next episode comes out, why not check us out on our Instagram account at Nourish Yoga Training or pop us an email via our website. See you soon. <laughs>